Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 32. Yeah, so I guess there isn't anything fancy to say about 32, is there? No. But, and this is your first time joining us because you want to start in the middle, not the very beginning or whatever. I don't know. I keep forgetting what I say every week. (laughs) It's because you're old. (laughs) I usually have, you know, most people, you know, already know what I'm trying to say here, but apparently I'm old today and I don't remember, but welcome. Welcome. (laughs) David's old. Yay. Maybe if I was still 32, I could remember. There we go. (laughs) That was lame. But anyhow. So this episode, as of June 28th, we will not be having an episode for July 5th because that week is obviously a holiday weekend. And also July 2nd will be mine and Sarah's. How many years, Sarah? <laughs> oh, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Let's see what you know. <laughs> is this because you don't know? No, I do know. Uh, do this you know? will be our eighth. Yep, that's yeah. correct. It'll be our eighth anniversary of being together. So <clears throat> yeah. my guess I guess you could say our gift to each other is not doing an episode and just relaxing at home for the week. Yes, sir. But we'll be back the following week. Yes. So what do you have for us this week? I have something that's been on my list for a while and I just haven't chosen it to do until, you know, today's episode. So let me guess. It's going to be true crime. It is. I didn't do it last week, so I had to. I had to make up for it. Right. But I'm going to be doing the alphabet murders. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll find out in a minute. I know you're not going to tell me. (laughs) What are you? What are you? You ever tell me during the week, so I kind of look for something in the same time period, but mine is not any time period of sorts. Correct. I am doing the history and slash origins of a summertime tradition. Ice cream. Ooh, ice cream. I figured after as much heavy shit that I've done the last week, I need to get back on track and doing the bringing back the fun and shiny at the end of the episode, I guess you could say. Yeah. I start with the doom and gloom and then you bring the... Bright and shiny, I think. The sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. So are you ready to get started then? Yes. All right. Let's get started. So I don't have... Like, there's not much backstory on this. It's kind of just, like, it starts off with what happens. Okay. Carmen Cologne was 10 years old, and on November 26th, 1971, her grandmother had sent her out to the neighborhood drugstore to pick up a prescription that was waiting. After going in and speaking with the pharmacist, Carmen had gone outside to wait for it while it was being filled. The store owner, Jack Corbin, stated he watched her get into a car that was parked close to the pharmacy. She was a block and a half from home, but she would never return to her house or go back into the drugstore to pick up the medication she was there to get. About 15 minutes after leaving the pharmacy, hundreds of motorists driving down Interstate 490 saw a child, naked from the waist down, waving her arms frantically while running from a car that was driving behind her in reverse. The car was said to be a dark-colored Ford Pinto hatchback. 
Carmen's family called police at 7.50 p.m., and they showed up to scour the neighborhood. Two days later, on November 18th, two teenagers were out riding their bikes, and they called police to inform them that they had found a half-naked body in a suburb of Rochester, New York. This was about 12 miles away from where Carmen had last been seen. Carmen's coat was found in a culvert approximately 300 feet away from her body. Her pants were discovered on November 30th. Her pants were discovered on November 30th near the road where numerous people drove by her while waving her arms and trying to flee from her abductor. In Carmen's autopsy, it showed that she had been raped. Her poor little body had been scratched up all over the place. She also suffered from a fractured skull and one of her vertebrae prior to being manually strangled. Do you know what I mean when I say manually strangled? Yeah. Like, by his, his hands. Right. Yeah. The fact that Carmen was murdered and that not one person stopped to check on her as she was running down a highway, half-naked, screaming and waving her arms, it created a public outrage. Right. Which, yeah, duh. <laughs> like, hundreds of people passed her. Yeah, it's, like, not a single person, like, that's not fucking right. Not one. Not one. Numerous people and businesses had helped raise a $2,500 reward to a $6,000 reward. It took a few months before the authorities would realize that they had run into a dead end in their investigation. Billboards were put up, I think, five in total. Okay. Were put up around the Rochester area that had a picture of Carmen on them with the headline, Do you know who killed Carmen Colon? They advertised the $6,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest. This would lead to several new tips. However, the murder of Carmen remained unsolved. But there would come a suspect from this one. This one in particular. Miguel Colon was Carmen's uncle and was considered a strong subject in her murder. He was the brother of Carmen's dad. And after Carmen's parents split up, Miguel made moves and began to date Carmen's mother. On occasion, Carmen would walk to the pharmacy to gather the family's prescriptions. She typically went with her grandfather, but the day that she disappeared, she had asked to go alone. A couple of weeks before Carmen's murder, Miguel had purchased a car that matched the description of one of the witnesses that claimed to have seen reversing after the girl on the highway. Yeah. Investigators confiscated the car to search it and found that it had been cleaned and detailed inside and out from bumper to bumper. The dealership that sold the car to Miguel said that the car wasn't in a condition that needed to be cleaned prior to be solding, and they are not the ones that cleaned it that thoroughly. Miguel did. Four days after Carmen's murder, Miguel made his intentions known and was planning to relocate back to Puerto Rico. Investigators went to Puerto Rico to question Miguel in 1972, and he ran. He would want up he would wind up turning himself in on March 26th and agreed to go back to Rochester for questioning. During the interview, Miguel was not able to give a good alibi for the time and date of the disappearance or murder of his niece, Carmen. There was no one to corroborate any story he gave. Even though the investigators had some circumstantial evidence against Miguel, there was no physical evidence taken from the crime scene from his car, obviously, because it was fucking swiped clean. Right. Yeah, so they had nothing that would actually physically connect him to the murder. Miguel wound up committing suicide in 1991 when he was 44 years old after a domestic violence incident where he shot both his brother and wife. Both of them survived. Obviously, he didn't. Right. <laughs> Good riddance. 
Well, I mean, last week, you know, the dipshit that I covered, he got shot in the head and survived until the next day, but... Yeah. <clears throat> well, a day too long, but anyway. Correct. A lot of days too long. But that was last week. Yes. 17 months after the disappearance and brutal murder of Carmen, at about 5 p.m. on April 2nd, 1973, Wanda Walkowitz disappeared from Rochester, New York's east side. She was out running an errand at a deli. The owner of the deli stated that she had been there, that she purchased the groceries that she was there for, and left around 5.15 to head back home. She didn't make it home, and her mom, Joyce, reported her missing at 8 p.m. that night. The police instantly launched a very intense search to try and find Wanda. Fifty detectives looked around the numerous square miles of land around Wanda's home, the deli, and near the Genesee River where she often played. Unfortunately, the search would reveal nothing, and they were not able to locate her. Neighbors and three of Wanda's own classmates told the police they saw her struggling to carry the grocery bag, that she even stopped at one point to wedge it between, like, herself and a fence mm -hmm. so that she could get a better hold of it. And they also noted that as she was holding it between herself and the fence that a brown car drove by really slow which wasn't normal for that area, I guess. Wanda Wachowicz's fully clothed body was found at 10.15 a.m. the next day by a police officer. She was sprawled out at the base of a hill alongside an access road to State Road 104 in Webster, which is about seven miles from where she was abducted in Rochester. The positioning of her body showed that she was more than likely thrown from a fast-moving vehicle at the top of a hill, and then her body rolled down that hill. Like Carmen, Wanda's autopsy showed that she had been raped and then strangled from behind. This time, instead of by hand, there were ligature marks on the neck uh, that they said were most likely from a belt. There were numerous defensive wounds on her, which shows that she fought as hard as she could against her murderer and didn't just lay there and take it, basically. She didn't give up. The autopsy also revealed that there were trace amounts of semen and pubic hair on the young girl's body, and the latter did not come from her. But to add even more, there was a lot of white cat fur found on her clothing, and the Wachowitz family did not own any type of animal with white fur. So whoever took her had a white cat. Billboards were made for Wanda as well, and this time the reward for finding the murderer of Wanda was up to $10,000. During the investigation, police found an eyewitness from the deli that was working on the evening of April 2nd. The witness said that he saw Wanda walking alongside the passenger door of a big brown car while carrying on a conversation with the driver. They were unable to see exactly who was driving the car. They couldn't determine gender, race, nothing. There was a second person that contacted the investigators that said she saw a man forcing a red-haired child into his light-colored Dodge Dart between 5.30 and 6.00. The description of the girl did match that of Wanda. Rochester Police Department threw out the idea that the murders of Carmen and Wanda were linked. In September of 1973, a local TV network announced that they had the intentions of broadcasting a televised reconstruction of Wanda's abduction and the recovery of her body. This half-hour episode was shown on October 21st and was joined by public cries for someone to turn in any tips they had that would lead to an arrest and justice for the Wachowitz family. They gained over 200 calls from the public and numerous tips, but none of the leads led them anywhere. Seven months after the murder of Wanda, on November 26, 1973, 11-year-old Michelle Manzo was reported missing by her mom, Carolyn, after not coming home from school. 
Investigations would find that Michelle was seen by classmates around 3.20 p.m. walking towards a shopping mall. She was headed that way to get her purse that her mom had accidentally left there earlier in the day. About 10 minutes after this, someone saw Michelle sitting in the passenger side of a beige-colored vehicle that was speeding, but they were able to make out that Michelle was crying. Around 5.30 p.m., someone saw a man standing by a large beige vehicle with a flat tire that was parked on the side of the road. The witness stated the man was holding on to the wrists of a girl that strongly resembled Michelle. The person stopped to see if they needed help at all, and the man pushed the girl, like, behind him mm-hmm. to, like, hide her, I guess. And uh, the witness said that he had a really menacing look on his face, so he kind of took it for what it was, and he got the fuck out of Dodge. But with the guy pushing the girl behind him, it also obscured the witness from seeing the license plate of the vehicle. So he couldn't even call the police and say, hey, you know, I saw something sketchy. This is the license plate. Yeah. Michelle's body was found at 1030 a.m. two days after being reported missing. She was fully clothed and face down in a ditch 15 miles from home. In her autopsy, it showed that she suffered severe blunt force trauma to her body she had been raped and then strangled. As with Wanda, there were ligature marks on her as well, and they had guessed it was from, like, a thin rope. There were also spots of white fur on Michelle's clothing. There were also pieces of leaves that they were able to, like, get out of her clenched hands. Yeah. Which told them she was probably strangled exactly where she was found. Investigators were able to get a partial palm print from her neck. I don't know how the fuck they did that, but... Apparently, they got a partial print. And they were able to gather semen samples from her underwear. A DNA analysis of the semen proved that she was raped by only one individual. Carmen Cologne's funeral was held on November 22nd, 1971, and she had nearly 200 people in attendance. I'm assuming family, friends, and just people in the community that were there for support. But if, like... She's Hispanic, correct? Uh, yeah, Puerto Rican. So, yeah, they, it's going to be friends, family, and family of friends. and Probably. Because when I used to play pool at uh, the VFW here, anytime they had uh, their version of the Sweet 16, eight, the words escaping my Quinceanera. head. Quinceanera? Yeah, the, the side room was fucking packed full of people. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so. those are, that's, that's a huge event. Right, I understand it's a huge community. event, but it's like... Everyone shows up, like, the third cousins and everybody, so, like, it could have just been immediate family, basically, but who knows? Could have been. Well, immediate family is very small. Like, immediate family family would be, like... extended family is what I meant to say. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Um, Wanda Walkowitz's funeral was held on April 6th, 1973, and she was laid to rest in a small white and gold casket. There's something about children's caskets that just makes me so sad. It's not something you ever really think about. Yeah. Just... mm. Michelle Mainz's funeral was held on December 1st, 1973. She had an open casket and was seen by hundreds of people. Her dad, Christopher, got up to speak to the crowd in front of him. He simply stated, She was a sweet little girl. She didn't fight much. All three girls, Carmen, Wanda, and Michelle, were laid to rest in Rochester in a Catholic cemetery called Holy Sepulchre Cemetery. All three of the murders caused a lot of public outrage, as I stated earlier. They all received a lot of media attention. With all the attention received and tips gathered, it was inevitable that a composite sketch would be made to the public of who they thought the suspect was. There was a tip hotline 
set up solely for tips on the three murders. Anonymity was given to every single caller with information to give. Nonetheless, no credible suspect was ever found. Even though the investigators talked to more than 800 could-be suspects, the real person responsible for the alphabet murders was never caught. The investigators did have a theory about the person that could have done this. So given each of the girls' background, poor Catholic families, very few friends, um, recent occurrences with, have been, with them being bullied, not doing well in school, and the investigators thought perhaps it could have been somebody that was employed at the school. Someone who could watch their patterns, had access to the information they potentially looked for. Had it been a worker from school, they would have been trusted by each of the girls. Or at least they would have been able to gain their trust and not come off as a threat. I don't believe that one anywhere. It was just a theory that yeah. they never looked into. Now, when I was telling you about the three girls, did you notice any similarities between the stories? Yeah, that they're all from the Rochester, New York area and... For them to be in a Catholic cemetery, they all had to be Catholic, because I don't think they're going to bury somebody that's not of that faith in a Catholic cemetery. Correct. So each of the murdered girls were preteens, like 10 and 11 years old. Each of them had disappeared in early morning to mid-afternoon in Rochester, like you said. All three of the bodies had been found later on within bordering towns of Rochester, each of the girls were found either fully clothed and then the one that was half clothed. They were all found close to an expressway. If they weren't on the freeway itself, they were on, like, access roads. With each of the autopsies, they were all three deemed to have been thrown out of a moving vehicle. All three girls were short. All of them raped prior to being strangled to death. And all three were seemingly outcasts in their group of peers. Both Wanda and Michelle had their stomach contents looked at during autopsy, and both of them had eaten about an hour prior to being murdered, and both of them redressed after the murder took place. The investigators involved believed that a possibility that each of the victims had been handpicked due to their names being double initials was slim to none. So you have CC, WW, and MM. However, with that even being out in the air, this went from being called the alphabet murder murders to the double initial murders. Carmen's mother made her very first public statement in 1995. In the statement, I'm going to butcher this name and I apologize. It's just not a name I've ever seen before. Guillermina Colon said that even though she lived her whole life in poverty, she wished she could only have one thing before her death and it wouldn't be money. It would be knowing who killed her daughter. And a quote directly from her said, If I could die knowing who killed my Carmencita, I could die more peacefully than I have lived. It is the only thing I want in my life to know that this person had to pay for the terrible things they did to my little girl. If the person who did this could have any compassion, he would see the pain and suffering the families of these little girls have gone through for all this time. With that... There were other suspects, and even a notable one, not part of the Big Six, but one of the the two um, men that were deemed the Hillside Stranglers. I think Arthur Shawcross is one of them. That's not the name. Okay. It's the other one. Because he was in the Genesee River area. Oh, yeah. But um, out of all the people that were noted, not one of them panned out as being the actual killer because DNA testing ruled him out. 
The real killer of these young girls has not been found or caught, which means he could still be alive. He could be living right next to you. In my hopes, he's dead. Right. Anybody's hopes he should be dead. Yeah. I do know that they... Um, there was a girl that had written in to the police that she believed her grandfather was the killer of these girls because of the plethora of nasty shit that she found in his house. Yeah. Um, but it's being investigated as of right now, so I don't really have anything concrete to say about that. So this is like a recent update? Yeah. Like this year. So it's still being investigated. Oh, that's good. And I hope one that the dude's just dead and they never find him but i hope that if he is alive that they find his ass and that he fries right and that's the alphabet murders i don't know about you but i'm ready for some bright and shiny and sure sunshine and rainbows yeah i've slightly heard of the alphabet murders before on the back catalog of a show that i listened to yeah um but i just never got to it yeah but yeah so are you ready for some bright and shiny fun stuff? I is. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people are probably ready to hear from bright and shiny from me after my last couple episodes. Yeah, probably. You haven't done a weird one in a while, so let's no, let's the, get on with well, it. This isn't really weird, but weird's coming up. Well, okay. I don't know how much weirder I can get than Lobster Wars and fucking shooting potato dumplings at airplanes. I mean, it's pretty weird. I'm sure I can top those eventually someday. Oh, yeah. You'll find something. I always do. Mm-hmm. Maybe something related to this topic that might get mentioned later on. Okie dokie. Let's go. All right. <laughs> now that summer's officially here with a summer solstice that just recently happened. However, most people say that summer begins on Memorial Day. No matter when you decide when summer actually starts for you, it's almost certain you will eat ice cream at least once during the summer months. Whereas you and I usually always have ice cream in our freezer no matter the time of the year. Yep, but a lot of the times ours only goes like half eaten. We forget it's in there or we're just like over ice cream and then we go buy more and throw the old one away. Or I get this stupid bright idea, hey, I'm just going to basically buy us both a half gallon container and we end up throwing away half of it. Yeah. That shit was so fucking good. It was Amish made. Yeah, it was. We're getting off track already. Yep. The beginnings of ice cream are somewhat obscure as many countries have their own traditional frozen sweet treats, as you could say in parallel thinking. And that'll be more prevalent as I tell you about some of these. Okay. The ancient Persians, as far as back as 550 BCE, in what is now known as present-day Iran, the Persians would use ice houses known as yak shells. They are a cone shape, and they look very similar to a cinnamon roll if you would push it in from the center out, or like an onion volcano at a hibachi grill. It's the best Aww. way to describe what these structures look like. That's a good way to describe them, though, because you can visualize that. Inside these yak shells is a giant pit where ice and snow would be stored year-round for food preservation and drinks in the summer, most historians believe. Mm-hmm. And where a lot of this snow and ice came from, obviously, is from the mountains. Yeah. Because, like, the average high temperature is, like, in the 90s. That's hot. How these yak shells would work is by evaporative cooling. The colder air would enter through the openings at the base of the structure and descend into the ice pit. The cone shape of these structures would guide any remaining heat upwards and outside through openings in the top of the cone. Mm-hmm. 
and what these structures were made out of were like very thick walled adobe and sand and sometimes they would even put straw on the outside of these to add an extra thermal layer okay to keep the snow and ice from melting yeah Depending on what parts of Iran where these yak shells are located at, they would also be accompanied with ponds for producing ice all year round, with using the lower overnight temperatures to freeze water into ice. And then the next day they would break it up and then fill the yak shell with this ice. You can actually go to Iran and still see approximately about 100 of these still original structures still standing. Oh, so they didn't all get destroyed. No. Oh. All, are they still working though? No, they're not. They're not using them currently now. But you can still go in there. Gotcha. And you can go to them, see where they're at, and then some of them they do allow you. Cause some of the pictures showed people standing down inside the pit. Yeah, I was just curious because you know the advancement of technology and everything. Those are right. kind of. Now there might be used for traditional purposes. I mean, like if they were here in the United States, I'm sure you know my favorite place on earth would fucking have an operational one. <laughs> Which would be the Greenfield Village, for Uh those that don't know. That's your favorite place on Earth? Yep. And I took you to that? Mm -hmm. It's like one of my favorite places on Earth to be. Oh. And from this ice and snow, the Persians would make faluda and sorbets all year round. Faluda is similar to sorbet. It consists of thin-made noodles from starch in a semi-frozen syrup made from rose water and sugar. It is often served with lime juice and sometimes ground pistachios. Okay. Since a lot of these earlier frozen treats are very similar to sorbet, for those that aren't sure what a sorbet is, as we know it is a dessert, it's often mixed with fruit juice or fruit puree and other ingredients such as wines or liquors or honey. Sorbets do not contain any dairy products like its counterpart in sherbet or sherbet here in the United States since we can't seem to use already existing words in the English language. Correct. In the Indian subcontinent of South Asia, you will find kulfi or kulfi. I couldn't find a pronunciation guy, Nick, so I flip-flop back and forth to okay. the correct pronunciation of it. This treat originates back to the 16th century as well, and it is similar to ice cream. We know it, but is denser and creamier than ice cream. With its density, it melts a lot slower than ice cream. Traditional flavors of Clouffet is rose, mango, cardamom, saffron, and pistachio. Rose-flavored ice cream? Well, mm-hmm. That's strange. I've never heard that. Okay. Colfe is not whipped like ice cream when it's being made. It is slow cooked, allowing the sugars to caramelize before it's being poured into molds and quickly frozen. In Japan, kakigori has been dated back to the Heian period between 794 and 1185, where blocks of ice would be saved during the colder months and then later shaved down and served with a sweet syrup similar to a snow cone like we would know. Kakagori would typically be served to the aristocrats of Japan. Like, like we had learned that sweets similar to this were for the wealthy due to manufacturing costs in the birthday origins episode. Mm-hmm. However, even with ice cream's roots in the ice flavored treats and would start spreading through Europe by Moorish traders, Indian traders, as most historians would agree. But it's still up to debate today that ice cream that we know it now comes from Marco Polo's travels in China between 1271 and 1295 even though he never wrote about this in his travels. So it's more of a legend. But as this legend goes, he will learn the methods of making ice cream from the Chinese from their recipe of mixing fermented milk, flour, and camphor together along with ice that they have been making since the Tang Dynasty ages, which is more like a sherbet than an actual ice cream. Along with King Tang would also keep 94 ice men on hand to always make sure there was always enough for everyone in the palace to have. Why are you so goddamn mouthy right now? Because he wants ice cream. I guess so. Even though he never eats it. 
One of the first recorded mentionings of ice cream was in 1671 in England. Antiquarian Elias Ashmole noted it being served at the Feast of St. George for King Charles II. The only table at the banquet with ice cream on it was that of the kings. The Feast of St. George is in honor of the patron saint of knights and soldiers and is held on May 6th. 47 years later in 1718, the first recipe for ice cream is published in Mrs. Mary L's Receipts, a book dedicated to confectionery. I am reading this as it was written. Okay. This is going to sound really weird. Two ice cream. Take 10 ice pots. Fill them with any sort of cream you like, either plain or sweetened or fruit in it. Shut your pots very close. To six pots, you must allow 18 or 20 pounds of ice, breaking the ice very small. There will be some great pieces, which lay at the bottom and top. You must have a pail and lay some straw at the bottom. Then lay in your ice and put in amongst it a pound of bay salt. Set in your pots of cream and lay ice and salt between every pot. They may not touch. The ice must lie around them on every side. Lay a good deal of ice on the top. Cover the pail with straw. Set in a cellar where no sun or light comes. It will be frozen in four hours, but it may stand longer. Then take it out just as you use it. Hold it in your hand and it will slip out. When you'd freeze any sort of fruit, either cherries, raspberries, currants, or strawberries, fill your tin pots with the fruit, but as, but as hollow as you can. Put them to lemonade made with spring water and lemon juice sweetened. Put enough in the pots to make the fruit hang together and put them in ice as you do cream. Huh. I know it sounds really confusing. A little bit. <laughs> but this is like written in like 18th century English. So, yeah. Like old English? Yeah. Which, there's also, one of the things I looked into was within this timeline, it was a recipe for Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, I don't remember. It was like mm-hmm. an 18-step process, but I didn't want to read two recipes, like, run right after the other. Yeah. Didn't you say it was a George Washington? No, but he no. is brought up in here. Oh. It is, unknown who brought, it is unknown who brought ice cream to the colonial America, but Ben Franklin, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson... Regularly eat ice cream and serve it and serve ice cream as well. A merchant on Catham Street in New York showed at, showed that George Washington would spend two hundred dollars in seventeen ninety on ice cream alone. How much is that in today's money? I would try to find it, but I couldn't find an inflation calculator that went back that far. <laughs> I was waiting for it, and in today's money, yeah, that's six million dollars. <laughs> yeah. First Lady Dolly Madison would serve ice cream at the inaugural ball for her husband, now President James Madison, at the times. The popularity of ice cream wouldn't start to spread to the masses in Europe and the United States until the 1880s until Agnes Marshall of London, England, and Nancy Johnson of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania created homemade ice cream makers. Mm. These two women's designs for ice cream makers would be similar in in their designs, even though oceans apart. With these two ladies' inventions, ice cream would no longer only be for the wealthy, and now the working and middle-class families can enjoy it as well. How their designs differ is that Agnes Marshall's design is shorter and wider and you put the salt and ice on the bottom where Nancy Johnson's is more like a bucket and you salt and your salt and ice go around it similar to the one we use every year with my dad when he has this all over in July. Mm-hmm. But Marshall's design would be advertised to make a pint of ice cream in less than 30 minutes. My guess is because it being a shorter and wider base, your hair more surface area is being exposed to the colder temperatures that are on the outside of the container okay whereas the other one it's a smaller taller container so it's a smaller surface area agnes marshall would also now be known as the queen of the isis after writing four books on ice cream recipes she would even go to the extreme of suggesting using liquid nitrogen in these times 
which we do now today with dipping nuts. Now we just be like, would like to be a time traveler, like here, try this with dipping nuts, and so, then and then tell her that it, you know it was made with liquid nitrogen. You know. <laughs> She'd probably think you were a demon. Um, well, yeah, I can see how you could think I'm a demon with uh, showing up with ice cream like that in a form that nobody's ever seen before. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the work of a demon. But anyhow. Anyways, is it like that... Ro- is the liquid nitrogen like that rocket... What's it called? Rocket? Food? The rocket ice cream? Yes. I want to say yes. Okay. I forgot totally about that. Yeah. But maybe that's more like what she was thinking than what I was thinking with Dippin' Dots. It could be. In the 1870s, ice cream was available to just about everyone at these times. From street vendors with a penny lick and ice cream soda and ice cream sundaes. Now, I already could tell you when I was writing this out, you're going to be like, what the fuck is a penny lick? I'm assuming it's like a popsicle. (laughs) So, you know how everyone's like, I wish things were better in the older times. I'm like, no, the past was dirty as fuck and terrible. Yeah. This is one of those examples. Oh, God. Since ice cream cones wouldn't be invented until 1904 at the St. Louis World's Fair, most of these street vendors would only have one glass, two if you were lucky. So most customers would end up licking the glass clean or tin cup that they were using and give it back to the street vendor when they were finished. And then this street vendor vendor would, you know, just swish it around in a pail of fucking water to quote-unquote rinse it off. So all your add-ons like we have today of like sprinkles and crushed peanuts and chocolate chips was bacteria in these times. So wait, the penny lick was what? You could pay a penny to lick the bowl clean? No, penny lick is what you paid. And then oh, you lick okay. the bowl clean, but they were known as penny licks. That's so gross. <laughs> and they wonder how plague spread. Right. <laughs> Even though a more sanitary ally to ice cream, the Sunday as we would know now, as we come along in 1874, to get around blue laws that prohibited the sales of certain goods on Sundays. What? Was this in Indiana? No. <laughs> it was actually close. It was in <laughs> Illinois. Oh, God. One of these goods was the ice cream soda that people might have thought was too quote-unquote frilly as they would call it. So the sales of ice cream sodas were on Sunday were banned. But who created the first ice cream Sunday has always been con- contested between five United States cities. Two Rivers, Wisconsin, Buffalo, New York, Evanston, Illinois, Ithaca, New York, and Plainfield, Illinois. Even though we might not ever really know who invented the, sun- the ice cream Sunday. But Two Rivers and Ithaca are the two biggest rivals to make this claim. How Two Rivers makes this claim that George Haller asked the owner of Burner's Ice Cream Soda Fountain, Edward Burner, to drizzle chocolate syrup over his ice cream in 1881, and Burner would only sell them on Sunday for a nickel. The problem with this is that Burner was in his mid-teens and highly unlikely to own a soda shop at this time, along with his own obituary dated that his first Sunday was in 1899 and not, to, and not in 1881 like the historical marker in Twin Rivers, Wisconsin states. Ah. Whereas Ithaca's claim would be that Chester Platt, a minister and co-owner of the local pharmacy and soda fountain on a whim in April 1892, covered a dish of ice cream with cherry syrup and candied cherries. He would name this dish the Cherry Sunday in honor of the day it was created. The following month, they would now would be serving strawberry and chocolate sundaes as well. Even with many cases of parallel thinking across the country on who made this treat, the word Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-E, more than likely belongs to Evanston, Evanston, Illinois, where the blue laws prohibiting sales of ice cream soda on Sundays. So with sodaless ice cream soda, 
they were known as Sunday sodas. So basically people were eating everything else minus the soda soft drink in it. Gotcha. But with this name being of that of the Sabbath, as we know the common spelling of Sunday, this is where they believe the name Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-E, came from. So it wasn't associated with the Sabbath, Sunday, the mm -hmm. holy day of the week where you're supposed to rest and all that stuff. Right. Even though in the 20th century, more things would come for one of America's most staple foods, there is much more history that goes along with ice cream. From the invention of the ice cream truck, soda fountains becoming the new bar during Prohibition, and one pilot trying to make ice cream in a bomber during World War II to boost morale on the front lines. Along with the ice cream wars of the 1980s in Glasgow, Scotland, one thing is certain everybody loves ice cream. Yes. Ice cream. You scream. We all scream for ice cream. Correct. So, I have some fun facts that... Well, you have what? I can't do it because I'm so fucked up from being sick last week. Try it. Fun facts. There you go. The average American consumes 23 pounds of ice cream per year. Now, when I first read this, I thought, this is fucking stupid. There's no way. How big are these average Americans? And then I decided to go snooping through our own freezer because, you know, <laughs> we have have frozen pints in our freezer right now, as we always do. And kind of figured it out. Yeah, that's pretty damn close, actually, because yeah. you don't really think about it at the time. But it's still a lot of ice cream, but we eat a lot of it anyhow. The tallest ice cream cone ever made was over nine feet tall in Italy. Why? Why not? <laughs> Probably just for a world record. I Okay. What do you think is the most popular ice cream topping? Topping? Uh, hot fudge. Yeah, pretty much. Chocolate syrup is the most popular okay. ice cream topping. They're the same thing. One's warm, the other one's not. Yeah. It takes 12 pounds of milk to produce one gallon of ice cream. 12 pounds of milk? Yep. What? For some reason they measure milk... They measure ice cream ingredients in pounds and not gallons. Okay. Unless that website screwed up and meant to use word gallons. Huh. That Yeah, that's weird. Because usually when you're measuring liquid... Liquid, it's not in pounds. Yeah. The average number of licks to finish one scoop of ice cream is 50. Oh. Unless you're one of those fucking weirdos that likes to bite it with your teeth. <laughs> or some people we know that like to make it phallic-shaped and deep-throat it. <laughs> anyway now this last one with the long running joke of mcdonald's ice cream machines being broken you can actually visit mcbroken.com to see if your local mcdonald's ice cream machine is actually operational or not at the time that we recorded this episode the three closest mcdonald's to us were actually broken Shocker. But I think the best part of that whole thing is that you told me about this website right before we came in here to record. Mm -hmm. And you were laughing because there were so many more red dots than there were right. the working. What, what was the working color, blue or green? The working color was green and red was yeah. not working and gray was undistinguishable. <laughs> Which probably means it's not working. <laughs> like, well, at the time when this website was created... Um, the Federal Trade Commission was getting involved with why are these machines not working. We'll come uh -huh. to find out that the ma manufacturer that makes these ice cream machines, that the machines that McDonald's use, 
is that they are self-cleaning and self-sanitizing. It takes up to four hours for this machine to do this process. Yeah. And that it would have an error code pop up in the middle of the process, and they would have to start over again. But the error code wouldn't tell them anything. So that's what it is when they say it's not working. It's just because it's in the middle of its deep clean. Yeah. So, you know, before COVID happened, when most McDonald's were like 24 hours, like night Mm -hmm. crews would run this ice cream machine. No, not run the ice cream machine. They would send it in its cleaning cycle because that's going to be their lowest yeah. time for revenue of customers coming through. Gotcha. But then the morning day crews would come in and be like, there's this error screen code on the screen that they don't know what to fucking do other than run the sanitizing cycle again. And it takes up to like four hours to do it. Wow. And also there was in McDonald's in Portugal, they were advertising a Sunday around Halloween called Bloody Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Hmm. Well... I don't know about your world history. There is a uh, event that happened in Ireland that was known as Bloody Sunday. So people were thinking they were making reference to that because I, U2 has a song of the same name right. that talks about that event. Oh. So that so that promotion got pulled very quickly out of Portugal. Huh. Even though they said they did not mean to do any intentional harm to it. Probably somebody just didn't look into it. Right. They're probably like, oh, that just sounds catchy because they the U2 song not aware of what that song's about. Maybe. So some of these other things that I've listed off I might do later on in a clearance bin episode and whatnot. I know, we're due for one of those. Right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we can do one here soon. Yeah. So, but I think it's time we close the Emporium up for today, Sarah. What do you think? I don't. Okay. I have one question. What? What's your favorite ice cream flavor? It all depends where we're getting from or from or where. We'll say the Chief. The Chief? Probably their Blue Moon. Not the Butter Pecan? No. That shit's good, though. That's Old Man Ice Cream from my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, their Butter Pecan's pretty good. It is. Now, if we get it from the Prairie Farms that we always get from, it's the Brown Maple Butter or whatever. Yeah. Sounds fucking weird, but it's great. It is really good. The one place I wished was still open was that place in Fort Wayne. I know. Because I was looking forward to going back that summer in hopes they did that chili and sweet corn fucking ice cream again so I could go down there just to get it and try it. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite ice cream well I know my favorite ice cream is pretty much peanut butter anywhere but right. not like peanut butter cup it has to be peanut butter right. swirled through primarily chocolate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or an Oreo flurry with peanut butter sauce in it. Right. Would be my second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I got thinking about what central mi- micro creamery again. I'm like, how oh, that cheddar ice cream. And you're like, what the fuck's wrong? The with cheddar him? ice cream. That was weird. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. So some of you may or may not have know the place that I just mentioned about it, but it was this very small ice cream store, probably no bigger than the office of the Emporium for the most part. I mean, you could fit about six people in this place and that was about it. Yeah, it was very tiny. But they did not have the same flavors every week. They had new flavors every week very not traditional flavors like like i mentioned the sweet corn and chili was one of them Mm -hmm. and then the one with the cheddar like literal pieces of cheddar in this ice cream yeah there was so many different ones it's like oh we gotta go to four way to try this and then what was the one that i had gotten was it like a a buttered rum pecan i believe so and that shit was so good didn't you say you were starting to buzz a little bit from it? Yeah, because it actually had the alcohol in <laughs> <Still>? it. Still? <laughs> yeah, but no, that was really good. But their their stuff was, was I mean, right. it was weird. Not not something you would go 
to a typical ice cream right you know i mean they go, still you know, i think get. they still had some of your traditional ones but some of a twist or whatever Barely. like there was one they had with like crushed up captain crunch in it, and that was way before we finally went down there yeah and then they had what a, what they had a s'mores with um god there was something else in there that was weird there's the one that had the dill pickles and i remember that one. Oh yeah no thanks yeah but yeah what are your guys's favorite ice creams we would love to know yeah so join our facebook group if you haven't already and let us know what your favorite ice cream flavors are yeah buddy when i did was researching this i think one of the weirdest things that came up though was parmesan flavored and the black sesame Ew. one that i showed you the picture of looked like somebody just like put salt in that salt pepper into the ice cream mix yeah that's gross yeah but you know different flavors in different countries you know different things correct but I think it's time we close the Emporium up for the day, Sarah. What do you think? I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. Bye. Okay, bye. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. Do you know who killed Carmen Colon? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. You knew you were going to do it, too. Didn't I you? did. <laughs> I got to drop. Stop laughing.